This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will talk to incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. My guest today is Andrew Garrett. Andrew is an incredible CEO with over 40 years' experience in the wind energy industry. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Well, good morning. Yeah, my name is Andrew Garrett. I as you said, I, I've spent the last uh, 40 years, well, my, really my whole professional life in the wind business. First wind turbine at home in my parents' field in, in 1971. I entered the wind industry in 79, and then I set up uh, Garrett Hassan and Partners together with Ansel Hassan in 84. And I've stayed in the wind business until I retired in, I suppose, 2015, 2016. Since then, I've been energy, partly as a visiting professor at Bristol University, partly developing the England's largest wind turbine, which is the largest land-based wind turbine, which is also community-owned, and partly in other endeavours, particularly in, in offshore wind. So I've seen the industry or the turbines move from having blades which I could carry on my back to my first commercial activity as Garrett Hassan in the States. I could carry the one wind blade, wind turbine blade on my back. Now the biggest blades are 110, 120 meters long. That simple statistic, how far things have moved in my professional career. So my, my business was really based on mathematical modeling of every aspect of, of wind energy from the wind itself through all the details of the machine and vibrations and control system and electrical system down into the foundations at the other side into the grid. And we ended up, we sold the company in 2015 to Gimanisha Lloyd. We ended up, when I retired, with 1,000 people in 29 countries. So I've seen the industry grow to the huge machines, the, by far the world's biggest machines today. And our growth was sort of in parallel with that. Thank you. Who was your role model during your career? Did you have any? And why did you find them inspirational? I don't know that I really had a role in the form of a person. I think one of the features or, or characteristics of the wind business is it attracts extremely able and well-motivated people. So I, I, I think uh, I was inspired by my colleagues 
certainly had a very powerful uh, uh, early boss when I joined the Wind Energy Group in 1979. My boss was a chap called David Lindley, and uh, he was a a very driven character, and he collected together, I think, a very able group of people within the so-called Wind Energy Group, partly Taylor Woodrow Construction, partly British Aerospace, and partly uh, GEC. And within those huge organisations, we had this little microcosm, which was, was working on wind energy. And uh, he, he certainly dro- <clears throat> drove the business and inspired the people very effectively. I'm not sure I'd call him a role model for, for my career, but he was certainly an inspiration for us and for the as a whole. I guess a role model, you could say, in rather a broad sense, has been the Danish people. I think the, the Danish nation has led the way in decarbonisation, in the promotion of renewables. From They don't have much in the way of natural fossil fuels in the resources. And so from the first so-called oil crisis, they very much got involved in, in, in renewables. And that was an inspirational thing. If I look back uh, further into my career, I had a, 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 another very important presence in my life, I suppose, which was my PhD supervisor. I sadly died, but he was an inspiration to me. He, he inspired me to mathematical rigor and mathematical inquiry and, and, and helped me a lot to develop my mathematical skills. So that was a different... And actually, if I go back still further, I suppose I could see my various maths teachers in various different schools. I and mean, my interest, is, as will now be apparent, is mathematical modelling. And so maths has been my key technical interest uh, from the word go and and remains. Uh, So now I've just become a visiting professor in the ethics in in Bristol. My ability has has unfortunately gone. (laughs) I think when I was about 18, I was probably quite clever. Now I can't do much more than spreadsheets and things, but I still retain a a great interest in maths. So I think my mathematical teachers have have been inspiration. And I think David Lindley uh, has been, and a lot of other people in the G community. So it's a really extraordinarily capable and inspiring people and a great group of people with, with whom to be involved, both technically and, uh, and commercially. Thank you. That's very inspirational. What is the most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? <laughs> well, my current role isn't really very challenging because I've retired. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but I can, I, no, I can, let me enlarge upon that a bit. So I've spent, uh, as I've just explained, I've spent uh, my, my professional lifetime building up these uh, models, but also building up a, a business. So I suppose the most ch- challenging thing for me, in a way, has been moving from being an engineer to being a manager and uh, um, run, inspiring and leading a a group of about a thousand people. So that, that was an interesting transition. I, I still, as I've just explained, I've still retained a very strong interest. So I think the thing I've always found most difficult is, is all the managerial stuff rather than the technical stuff. So, so it's terribly important running a company, of course, that you 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 have the all the HR functions and the budget functions and, and, and all that stuff that goes with any business. And it, that has to be done properly and rigorously, just as the technical work has to be done. The, 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 the difficult thing I found was, was keeping myself really interested in that side of things. Right now, I mean, I have a very challenging job, but quite a different job. I, I mentioned in my introduction that uh, I'm involved in, a, in a, the development of a community turbine 
community-owned turbine here in my hometown in Bristol in, in a place called Lawrence Weston, which is one of the, in the 10% most deprived community in the UK. They ha- have a lot of turbines in their area. I mean, in their, in their um, well, yeah, in, in, in their neighbourhood. But all those turbines belong to big institutions or big corporations. So they've had wind energy done to them, I suppose, rather than done by them. And this project, which is now being built right at this very minute, is their turbine. So it's owned by the community, despite the fact it's a very impoverished community. It's going to be England's biggest onshore turbine, and it's going to be owned by the community. For me, developing that one turbine has been quite a difficult job. It's the smallest project which I've been involved in since the early 80s. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the simplest. So career, quite a lot of my latter part of my career before I retired was, was doing technical due diligence on, on huge projects. Uh, so the world's biggest projects where we, we, we did the technical due diligence on. So this is one turbine as opposed to hundreds. And it's, uh, say, five million pounds as opposed to a billion pounds. But that doesn't make it easy. <laughs> the fascinating thing about my, my the career that I've had, apart from just being present as the as the technology developed and the turbines grew, was seeing the whole industry becoming, I suppose you could say, much more conventional. You know, when I started mm. out, well, people you pat me on the head and say, "Well, when you when you grow up, you realise you can only make electricals or, or or splitting the atom." And uh, a lot of people tried to discourage me uh, in the early days. Now it's become you know, part of the energy mix and a very important part of the energy mix, given the, given both the, the, the climate crisis and now the more recently the, the uh, political crisis engendered by the Ukrainian war. So to, to see develop, not just technically, but also commercially and, and, and politically, has been has been very very interesting and, and it's been a challenge. So I I've introduced a lot of banks in, into the the industry. I mean I tried to make the, the the wind business look like the conventional businesses in which they were involved, in order to introduce conventional finance and, and produce needed for the huge developments that are now taking place. And that's been a very that was a challenge to start with, but that that, that was a very interesting challenge. And now, of course, all the banks are clamouring to be involved in renewables, and mm-hmm. it's, it's not really a question of finding the money; it's finding the projects now mm-hmm. in in which they can be involved. So, how did you? You were mentioned before. Some people tried to discourage you. How did you handle that? In your early, in your early career, <laughs> I, I think it's arrogance of youth, probably. So I did a, <clears throat> I did a degree in engineering, and then I did a PhD in essentially applied maths, I suppose, theoretical fluid mechanics. And I was sort of dabbling in academic stuff, and <clears throat> I could have had a sort of a mild academic career, I think. And I was a, I was a, a research fellow for a year or so. Then I got a. A letter. I was working on on uh, trying to work out why dolphins can swim so fast. Uh, they, they can swim much faster than they should be able to if you look at their weight uh, and work out how much muscle they can they could accommodate in their bodies. They shouldn't be able to swim as fast as they do. So they're doing something clever. Well, surprise, surprise! Uh, they're most beautiful creatures, and they're doing all sorts of clever things with their skins. I was doing that, and it was in the days we, where you could get money to do pretty much anything, you know, rather different to today's climate. And I was doing it really because there's some nice maths involved, and it, was, it seemed quite much. 
about the eventual applications. And then as I was a research fellow, having finished my PhD, I got a letter, a joint letter from the, um, the UK Admiralty and the US Navy saying, would I like to continue what I'm doing, but for them? And, and, and I thought, no, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't like to do that. And so that letter precipitated me, uh, it precipitated, precipitated some serious thought on my behalf about what my future should be. And it, it was a crucial letter for me. And, it, and it, it, I thought, right, I need to find something which I'm really going to devote my life to now. And I decided energy was the right thing. And I looked at nuclear and I looked at waves and geothermal and tides and uh, hydro and, and, and wind. And at that point, all the renewable were really in a similar stage of maturity. And, and probably more by chance than luck than judgment, I, I chose wind. Wind had, had, had the right technical ingredients for me. Um, so it was a fluid, and, and which I'd just been doing fluid mechanics. And, and it was just starting. So yeah, I plunged in with wind. I also decided that I should have as big a break as I could from in, in terms of culture. And so I went to work for really a very extremely right-wing, hard-nosed, big civil engineering company called Taylor Woodrow Construction, which I mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. And that was a cultural shock to me uh, because I've been in a sort of uh, liberal academic society and this was certainly not that. And so and there I met a lot of others and other like-minded people, all of whom were very capable. So when I started, uh, I felt convinced that this was the right thing to do. There were no turbines really then anywhere, except a few, few domestic ones in Denmark. So, and, and there was lots of money being put in by various governments, Western, European, and, and also um, the US government, into huge machines. They don't look so huge now. And the feeling was, if there was a future in, in wind, if wind was really going to contribute anything, it needed to be done on a large scale. And, and the natural players were therefore large engineering companies, and particular, since they're driven by, by the wind, aircraft or aerospace companies. So all over the world, aerospace companies uh, were starting to, 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 to dabble in wind. So Messerschmitt, Hamilton Standard, Boeing, and NASA, in our case, British Aerospace and Air Italia, all those people. So I, I had confidence that it was the right thing to do. So when people, I think when people tried to put me off, uh, I think uh, it probably only served to make me more determined. <laughs> and then when, after five years of working for the Wind Energy Group, Taylor Woodrow Construction, Ansel Hassan and I, uh, we both worked there. We set up Garrett Hassan. And that definitely was uh, the arrogance of youth. I mean, we didn't have any work. We didn't have any jobs. We both had young children and mortgages. But somehow we felt that we, we could do something uh, on our own. So we set up this little consulting company in, the, in a bit of space given to us by a city university in London and thought, OK, well, now people will beat a path to our door because they'll want our skills. And they did, <laughs> which was rather remarkable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Thank you. How does your current role or your previous role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I guess I, I had a, a very uh, easy childhood. I had a very I mean, terrific parents, happy home life and expectation that, that I think all of us would sort of succeed in 
some way or another. We, 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 we weren't an academic family, but we were a family where the people were used to going to university. I, I don't think I had any clear idea as a boy what I would do or what I wanted to be. I, 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 from a very early age, I, mean, I really mean very early age, so about seven or eight, I really, really enjoyed maths. I think I knew that I would do something uh, at least vaguely mathematical. As a, <clears throat> as a teenager, I, 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 I won a scholarship to Oxford. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I think when I was 18, I must have been quite clever and I've gone downhill ever since. So I don't think more than knowing that I um, wanted to do something mathematical, I didn't have any clear idea. I, I certainly, my brother, my older brother, is a, you know, he's a sculptor, filmmaker. He can do anything with his hands. He's incredibly clever with his hands and very practical. So he always did all that sort of thing. He demanded he would do it. So it's slightly ironical that uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm ended up as the engineer, but I, and I can do a little bit, but, but nothing like what he can do. And so I'm, I'm not a practical person. I think my, my skills are, are more analytical than, than, than manual. I maybe got slightly better at that as, as I've got older. So I, I think it was always ex- expected that I, in, in some sort of modest way, I, I, I would be reasonably successful, probably slightly uh, academic. When I set off into the wind business, and as I mentioned before, there, were, there really was no wind energy to be seen. In fact, when I first went to China, we, 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 we as a company did a lot to, to get the Chinese wind energy going. Now the world's biggest market. When I went there, there was not a single turbine producing electricity. There was water pumping, but nothing else. So I had no idea uh, when we set up Garrett of Sound in 84, when I joined Wind Energy Group in 79, what the future would hold. I mean, if I, I have over the years made predictions of how big the turbines will be, how many there will be. And I look back on those predictions and they're, and they're hopelessly wrong. <laughs> Uh, I mean, really, we've far outstripped, and I think I'm not alone in this. Other other people were also pontificating in the same way and getting being hopelessly modest. So what actually happened, I don't think anybody 20, 30, 40 years ago could possibly have envisaged what has happened. So, that, of course, that's made it immensely exciting. Technically, I've had a very interesting life, and it's very hard to see, to imagine something I could have done as an engineer which would have been more exciting to have been in at the very beginning, see something growing for, I mentioned earlier on, from 12 metres in diameter to 200 metres in diameter or 12, 60 kilowatts to, to uh, 20 megawatts. You know, it is absolute, to use a, a technical term. Uh, and so could I have ever thought, anticipate that? No, I absolutely didn't. And, and uh, I, as I think is often the case, I've been very, very lucky. I mean, I've been lucky to have been part of this amazing industry with amazing people, seen this amazing growth. And I've also made a, you know, a modest success of, of a business. And those two tracks, one, one as a business person and the other as an engineer, have, in my case, rather very luckily fitted together very well. So the timing, again, luck, but the timing for setting up and getting involved in this in the very early stages was was very, very fortunate. Interesting. Thank you very much. I wondered if you were going to be hiring someone previously, or maybe just now or even previously, what would make an outstanding hire? Hmm. What would you look for? What skills, experience, knowledge? Well, there, there are... 
One characteristic of our, our business, and I think it's probably true of the wind energy business in general, but my consulting business, our consulting business in particular, is, was, and probably still is in my absence, its ability to attract extraordinarily talented people. We were never short of talent. We were often short of experience. So if you look at the demography of Garrison as a company, it was very, very young. And the other day I was asked to give a seminar about um, leadership. And I must have looked a bit shocked. And the guy asking me to do so, it's all right, just, just talk about your leadership philosophy. And I thought, oh, blimey, well, <laughs> I think I've got a leadership philosophy. So I then had to, I then had to think, well, okay, I must have had this business. And so I thought in, in order to prepare myself to give this seminar, I, I did think about what, what or try to develop or, or articulate what my philosophy was. It sounds very grand, but basically, how, you know, how did I work? And what I discovered was, on reflection, that probably, again, by, by force of circumstance, my philosophy was to trust people. So I mentioned earlier on, that we had an extraordinary well of, of talent and we had lack of experience. So a lot of young, very talented people without much experience. So what do you do? And what I did was to trust people to do a good job and, and keep an eye on them, of course, mm-hmm. and help them out if possible. But what I found was it was amazing what people could achieve through, through sheer well, drive, of course, but also by giving the freedom to, to, to use their talents. So to answer, this is a really long answer to your question. I, I would always look for people, in, in our case, because it was a consulting engineering company and it was really quite mathematical or technical, I would look for really very sharp people, but also people who are driven. People. One of the great things about our, our company, and I think the industry in general, is Almost everybody, probably not absolutely everybody, but almost everybody was there because they wanted to be involved in renewables. They wanted to be doing something that they felt was worthwhile. They weren't just coming to earn money and, and, and do a job. They actually believed that our, our, our product was important for them and, and for society. So I would expect to, to, to find someone professionally driven, technically able, and with, with, with who shared ideology. And I think those people, when they came together, it meant that we had, um, this is hard for me to say, because I may not be objective altogether, but I think we did have a very powerful ethos, which meant people did work for a common cause. And then they're working for a common cause, and they have a a really positive culture that that makes a pleasant place to work and and a good place for people to both personally uh, and professionally. So people, there was a general feeling of, of helpfulness, I think, if, if the, and there were so many talented people around that there was always someone who, who, who knew what to do. So those would be the basic talents I would look for. And I, I guess, you know, that's very, very common. When I stepped outside Garrison after I retired, I did start to discover that the, the typical talent that we had and the typical person working in, in Garrison was actually not typical and so of society. These were particularly clever, driven people, and that's what made it such good fun. So it was a bit of a shock after 40 years to step outside. (laughs) Mm. Thank you. I think it's important to trust people as well. 
I should say, now and again, that didn't work, of course, but but by and large, uh, it did. And I think this goes more, it goes beyond technical capability. It, 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 it is part of the culture. I did decide when I was considering this whole question of leadership philosophy that it was part of the culture. So there are two types of managers, I think. One, one type of manager starts from a default position of trust. The other type of manager starts from the uh, default position of, 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 of suspicion or that the person has to earn their trust. Okay. And what I did discover, if you've got the second person uh, organisation, it could be very damaging. So, and of course, people do make mistakes from time to time, but you have to be there to make sure that you help them out of those mistakes. And, and, and that was our, the, the small number of more senior people had to do that job. But I think it generally it worked pretty well. I agree, actually. That's a really good that's a really good message. Have you ever had any career disasters and how did you handle them? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, I don't know about personal career disasters. I think I've, I mean, that's probably been okay. But have I been involved in disasters? Yes. I can give you a, a very uh, poignant early learning experience when, we set up, um, as I mentioned earlier on, we set up Garrett Hassan in 84, Ansel Hassan and I, and I can't remember now, but it was probably a couple of years later. We were working um, with a remarkable company in, in Southampton, then called Gifford Technology, later called Composite Technology. And there's a guy there who's unfortunately just died a, a couple of months ago called Jim Platts, who who led the way in wood composite blades. Anyway, Composite Technology and ourselves were approached by an American developer who, who had built a whole lot of small machines with very, very flexible blades. They were poltruded polyester blades, and they were rather like spaghetti. They, they sort of flopped around, and then when they were spinning, rather like a helicopter, I suppose, uh, they stiffened up. Anyway, he was having trouble with these blades. The blades were failing and falling off. So he hired uh, Jim Blatz's organization and, and ours to... to develop a new set of blades to replace the ones that were falling off. And we did. And it was very exciting. And particularly as a new, you know, new little company like ours, we put them on, we, we helped design them, uh, instrument them, put them on, tested them, and, and everything seemed to be hunky-dory. And then about six months later, I rang up Mr. Zebedee, who was the boss of this place, Mr. Zebedee of Dollar Energy Corp. So that probably gives you a clear idea of his motivation. And I said to him, I, you know, I haven't heard from you for a bit, but how are the blades? And uh, and he said, the blades are fine, but all the towers have fallen over. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all blimey. So, so this was a lesson, and then probably a commercial lesson, of course, how do you handle that? Uh, but also a technical lesson, which was that, that these machines are very closely coupled. You know, so you can't fiddle with the blades without affecting everything else. And, and of course, you can't fill up the tower without affecting the blades. So, so the whole thing is a coupled system. That led us led us to develop a computer program called Bladed, which remains the dominant computer program in the, in the industry, at least outside Denmark, for predicting the, the behavior of these now huge rotating systems. So that lesson of that, of that disaster was, right, we really have to understand the whole system. We can't design a blade. We have to design a blade for this system. We have to design a tower for the system, a control system for the system. 
And so that led us to develop this bladed program, which I mean, I started writing in 85 or something, and it has continued to this day and, and is used all over the world. And something I'm very, very proud of. Part of Garrett Hassan's mission was that we everything better than everybody else. That was the that was the driving message. And Bladed did that. And so, yeah, we recovered. I don't know how, how Dollar Energy Corp got on, really, but it certainly it was a nasty experience for us, and, 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 but, but, but a very catalytic experience in terms of our business development. And that, that turbine design work and that computer program continued to be a, a major source of, of revenue for us and indeed helped us very much get into the Chinese and indeed the Korean uh, wind energy market. So having that tool available and continuously developing that tool, and now is an amazingly sophisticated and complicated uh, program, which does does model everything. And in the later years, in the last 20 years or so, control systems have become, I, I would say, the nerve center of these turbines. And, and, and that they have been part of the development of, of the bladed system. So that's something I'm particularly proud of because we talk mathematical interest. This is, this is really uh, mathematics in, uh, in powerful application. And it has allowed us um, as an industry to develop these huge machines. I mean, you can't put up a 200 meter diameter turbine unless you're absolutely sure you know how it's going to behave. You know, you can't afford to, for it not to work. And, and so the mathematical modeling, other, others, of course, have come along as well. Having, having really reliable and properly validated mathematical models is crucially important, in, probably in every application. But when you're dealing with these massive machines, that it really is very important. Thank you. I agree. It is very important. What is your zone genius? What are you most good at? I suppose, as I mentioned several times, I think I've lost the ability to do anything particularly clever technically, if I ever had it. I think the thing I've been particularly good at has been communicating complexities to other, to customers, to bankers. So being able to to look at a technical problem, which for me would always have been something to do with wind energy, and to translate that into, into commercial terms and into a framework that, that non-engineering people can understand and make decisions. One of the, um, well, the things, I, things that I suppose I personally led the world on was, was technical due diligence, which means making sure the turbines work, making sure they produce the energy that was expected. And so that's actually, at one end, a highly technical. We try to turn them turn these projects and turbines into things that the the, the, the the banks could lend upon. And that also meant we had to make important decisions. So a natural engineering inclination is if you don't understand something or something isn't completely clear, you do more work until it is clear. Well, if a problem arises with the project and, and someone wants to build the project, someone wants to lend the money, but there's a few uncertainties left, you can't say, well, let's do another year's study of this and then make a decision. Mm. You have to say, right, this is what we're going to do. And that solution might be a technical one. It might be a, a commercial one. It might be insurance. It might be some sort of bond. Uh, and so it, it, the, the natural inclination of an engineer to go clear 
doesn't work under those circumstances. So making that sort of decision and brokering that sort of deal, <clears throat> I think is something which I did, well, I had a lot more experience of than most other people of. And, and so, so that's perhaps something which I developed uh, as, a, as a speciality. So communication between technical and financial people, I think brokering big deals was an area where I did play a, a particular role. I've also, over the years, I've had a, a lot of political interest with a small p, not, not party political, but pr- pr- promoting renewables and wind energy in particular. I, 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 a long time ago, I was chair of the British Wind Energy Association. And then more, more recent, 14, I was president of the European Wind Energy Association. And I've spent a lot of time in talking to the people, fairly senior people in the commission and environment and energy ministers around the world, and also doing the same thing, so developing new markets in, in Australia and in Brazil. You know, we had we, we a market, we helped to develop the Australian market, and we were really, I think, quite central in, in, in developing the now huge Chinese market. And that, that, that partly is technical, you know, how to design turbines. It's also partly how do you set up an incentive scheme? How do you set up, a, uh, how do you set up an electrical network? And we had our, a, a, you know, a bit of all of that. So I think I moved from being very much technically and mathematically driven to a broader technical come political come commercial role and probably you know covering being able to cover those three bases in a reasonably competent way was perhaps something I I was particularly good at. When you were working in your your last role as a CEO, what type of work would you always delegate? The whole business of delegation is clearly crucial to being able to expand a business. And I, I have noticed that the ability or the willingness to delegate is something which is very variable. So you'll you'll find people, very, very talented technical people, who probably because they are so clever and good at what they do, don't want to delegate because they always feel they can do it better themselves. And I completely understand that. And uh, there are other people who are absolutely delighted to delegate because they don't want to do it themselves. And, and getting that balance uh, right is, is crucial. In my case, I came up through a very technical or mathematical role. And at some point, and I don't, I don't think I actually actively said, right, I'm going to stop. I, I, I had working for me a very talented group of people. It was clear that they could, they, they could um, well, they could and should uh, do it and do a much better job. I also discovered that you should never be worried about hiring people much cleverer than yourself. And so I, I think uh, being surrounded by very, very sharp people is very good, and, and, and therefore you, you, it's natural to delegate. So I think, I, I think in the end I got pretty good at delegation, and maybe partly because I was no longer competent to do the things that I used to do. I think the whole business of delegation is very interesting. By, by the time I stopped, no, I, I was... Jack of all trades and master of none. I, think I, I was spending my time doing HR and budgets and a bit of politics. But I have zero training in, in budgets or accountancy. And I've, what I've learned about HR, I've just learned from running the business. And I've long since ceased to do the things that I was actually properly trained to and probably quite good at doing because I was continuing to run the business. 
I probably should have delegated more commercial stuff than, than I did. I, I, when I stopped, I mentioned that we had offices in 29 countries and I was still g- going to visit them all. So I suppose I was still running the business as if it were a small business when it no longer was a small business. So that was something I probably didn't delegate well enough. So I think I delegated the technical staff, uh, technical uh, functions completely. Uh, I supervised the, the managerial ones, but the, the sort of softer side, the political or leadership side, maybe I couldn't delegate. And, uh, but I, I certainly was, was doing too much traveling around the world, seeing people, seeing our own staff than would conventionally be the case. But that may have been a good thing. Something I did I did do, particularly after we'd merged with Gamanisha Lloyd, was to recognize that there were people who wouldn't or couldn't delegate. And I tried to work with the idea that there was no, in order to be successful, in order to be senior, in order to be paid well, you didn't have to have lots of people working for you. So if some people naturally want to have people working for them and are good at it, other people, maybe the, the, the um, world expert on, <clears throat> on hydraulic valves or something, who will be immensely valuable to us as a, as, a, um, as a consulting engineering company, knew everything about hydraulic valves, but really did not want and probably could not manage a group of people. But that didn't mean that they were less valuable than the ones that could. So recognizing the the pure technical ability and talent of somebody, I felt was very, very important. So we established an extra sort of job titles and jobs for people like that, people who were extremely valuable but didn't want to run groups of people. I think I'm looking at other organizations. I, I do think there is still a tendency to think that seniority and value is determined by the number of reports that you have. And that that really, certainly in a technical business like ours, absolutely is not the case. It was really interesting, actually. I have one final closing question. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? <laughs> Very good question. I think I have often thought about that. I've got four children, a wife and four children. One of my regrets has been that I didn't spend more time with my children when they were young. So, yes, that that is a regret. And if if I was turning back the clock, I would try and adjust that. If if it's a more technical question, I've thought very hard about this when I've been, say, away from home over the weekend or for a, a long period of time in the States or South America or China or something, and working on a deal in, in, a, in a far off land, in a, a, a sitting alone in a hotel, thinking, because often you're doing a deal which you, you have to work on intensively, you know, while you're there. So often it's quite a remorseless sort of situation. And thinking at two o'clock in the morning, uh, writing some report or doing a calculation, it's like, gosh, you know, why, why, why am I doing this? Uh, what, what would I prefer to do? And then I thought actually pretty hard about that and thought, no, I'm doing, I am here far from home at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning or something, doing this because I love doing it. And, and I, I've said several times in this, uh, this uh, discussion that I feel I've been immensely lucky to have happened on, on renewable energy and wind energy in particular. And I would absolutely not have been doing that you know, had I been designing a, 
a missile or a bit of an aeroplane or, or something. I, I was able to and willing and actually keen to spend that sort of time and energy and dedication because I really believed in, in, in the aim, you know, in the goal. So I have thought about that question. And the answer is, apart from spending more time with my kids, but my, my kids have grown up now and, and, and I think we're all on pretty good terms. And so you know, there hasn't been a disaster. And my wife played a huge role in making sure that was the, that was the case. Would I choose another career path? No. I think it's been absolutely wonderful. And I recount myself as extraordinarily lucky to have found something which is so technically interesting as being you know, commercially rewarding for me and also is thoroughly worthwhile. I mean, what more can you ask, really? Excellent. No, thank you. That's all the questions I have for you today. I would like to thank Andrew for your time. Thank you very much. It was really appreciated. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.